Hello and welcome to InfoLinks on the Record. I'm your host, Kurt Thies. And I'm Olivia Vinkler. And we're coming to you with a hoarse voice live from day two of the Arma International Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Joining us today is Louis Eisen, author and consultant. And we're here to talk a little bit about his book that has recently been released, How to Write Rules That People Want to Follow, A Guide to Writing Respectful Policies and Directives. Welcome, Louis. Thank you. So first, tell us a little bit about your background. Started as a lawyer, practiced for a few years and left it because I didn't like it. Went into technology consulting for law firms. And this was back in the, say, end of the 80s when very few lawyers were using technology at the time. Uh, was a business technology consultant for 20 years and then went to work for the government of Canada and uh, information management in a variety of areas, uh, web content management, um, uh, records, uh, uh, there's a number of, for some reason, all of which escaped me, um, <laughs> policy, clearly, uh, policy. Uh, and are you Canadian? I am Canadian, yeah, I'm from so, Ottawa. From Ottawa, okay, perfect. Yeah. And so how'd you come to write the book? So, uh, after being in information management in the government for about 15 years, say, what I saw was that a lot of the people were struggling with the policy side. They were writing these policies that were 20 pages long, 40 pages. They were very hard to understand. Uh, nobody read them. They complained all the time that they didn't get any compliance. But I'm a lawyer, and there are ways to write rules. This is not rocket science. This is not a new invention. So all we have to do is apply the same principles we use writing legislation regulation to our policies, and it makes it a very easy process. And what I found was that the big trouble for policy writers is they would draft a policy and it gets sent to people for consultation and committee, and somebody would go, I don't like that word. You know, I don't like the way you said that. I think we should do this. And the conversation always devolved to how to write the policy as opposed to what is it we're trying to achieve? What is this policy about? So by teaching people, look, here, very simple how to write policies. Here are the rules you need to follow. You do this, 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 this. And now when you have your discussions with the people about the policies you've written, you can concentrate on the meat of it and not spend the time wordsmithing and not spend the time arguing over form and whatnot. And what are some examples of some of the common policies that companies would have? So this would be anything in finance, HR, IM, of course, IT, security, uh, facilities, any area that regulates operational policies, sometimes customer policies. Sometimes they just call them terms and conditions, they call them directives, they call them however they call them. But they're rules that they want other people to follow. And so, if we go way back, you went to law school, mm -hmm. so what were you doing at the time? What did you study when you graduate that led to law school? How did you get on this, this path? This path? Well, law school was one of those, you're not sure what to do with things, you know, sure. so go to law school. Um, I, as I practiced law for a couple of years, it wasn't for me. And so I moved into the area of law office automation that was just burgeoning at the time, just coming out. And I found that the um, running the management of the office, office management as a whole, and the information management, because law files are all about information, that that came very naturally to me. 
So that's where I stayed. And as I did consulting for law firms and law-related organizations like courts and um, uh, other uh, libraries and things that were related to the law field. And then uh, I taught a lot of um, lawyers how to use computers at the time. I was running the computer education program for what was called then the Law Society of Upper Canada, which is like our provincial bar association. Um, and when they started to train judges in the federal government how to use computers, they brought me on. So it was an easy transition. And at that point, I became a public servant and started working in the federal government and dealing with the kinds of stuff the government does. So how did the concept of respectful policies what in your experience led you to? So when I looked at most of the policies that people were complaining, I would arrive somewhere and I'd hear, well, we have a compliance problem. Nobody's following our policies. And I would look at the policy and say it was very long and wordy, full of lots of bold and italic and underline and words in all caps and very absolute phrases like always and never and no exceptions. They're very, very harsh wording. And think, well, maybe this is not what you're saying, but it's how you're saying it. That's the problem. I found that most of these policies sounded like angry parents scolding naughty children. They were threats. And in fact, the policy writing process ended up being a parent-child dynamic. In the terms of transactional analysis, uh, when you ask somebody to write a policy, the, the first thing they did was sit up straight and pull their shoulders back and <clears throat> get into their parent tone of voice and say, well, I've got to tell people what to do here. They would start to write things. And the, the whole dynamic about I'm in charge, I'm going to write rules, that would start to come out. And it was very dysfunctional because policies really are about how do we work together? How do we collaborate? So I saw the need to change the tone of voice in the policies and the influence of my legal training was that if you look at laws that we have, those laws aren't written in that tone of voice. So the strictest laws in any in any country uh, are the criminal laws. The laws against murder, treason, you know, the nasty stuff. And they don't say things like, uh, people should not kidnap each other. Never. No exceptions. Anybody who kidnaps somebody else is going to be punished may be subject to discipline. That's not the way they're worded. They're worded in a very, very matter-of-fact way. They say, a person who commits murder is guilty of an offense. A person who commits theft is liable for imprisonment of up to five years. It's just very matter-of-fact. Doesn't talk down to you, doesn't wag its finger at you. It's, 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 this is information for you. I'm informing you the way I would inform a colleague. And that led me to the understanding that we have a situation in this country where the strictest laws on the most heinous uh, most heinous crimes in the country are worded more respectfully than the policies that come out of many organizations. So do you have an example within an organization of what they typically uh, write in the wrong tone of voice and how that can be remedied? Certainly. Um, uh, anything that starts with employees must. Which, which you see a lot. A lot constantly. Yeah, because that's, I'm telling you what to do. Employees must submit vacation requests at least seven days in advance or they will be refused. Okay, that is an example of a completely 
um, offensive, aggressive statement, very harsh. The you're going to ask me how do we reward that Screen. right to make it yeah. right. So yeah. the the best what I think is the archetypal policy statement is office hours are nine to five. It's in the present tense. It's simply informing you. It doesn't say you better show up at nine. It's just office hours are from nine to five. And you will govern yourself accordingly. It's the understanding. Yeah. So uh, vacation requests will be approved or may, will be considered if submitted seven days in advance. I see. Or vacation requests are... Um, I, I, I tell people, uh, actually, use the present tense and start with we. So, we approve vacation requests that are submitted at least seven days in advance. That's our policy. Yeah. And what it's, a difference. Yeah, what a difference. And we're talking to them in the same way that use the tone of voice. If you had a brand new colleague in the office and you were explaining to them, okay, here's how we do things here. You do this and then we do this and we do this. That's the tone of voice the policy should be in. Because the policy is not about telling you not to do bad things and how I'm going to punish you. It's about telling you how to do things right. How is it that we do things in our company? Our policy is, for instance, that our policy is that we refund the customer who returns merchandise within 10 days. That's our policy. Not customers must return the merchandise within 10 days or else forfeit their right to return. That makes a lot of sense. So in your article, they should not repeat statements of law, do not repeat statements of fact, and they do not contain advice. Which of those three do you see companies violate the most often? All of them equally, I have to tell you. And that's because people fail to distinguish between a policy and the document that explains the policy to you. Let me give you a really easy example. You've probably filled out an income tax form mm -hmm. in your life. Did you read the Income Tax Act first? I don't think so. That's the policy. What you read was a little booklet that says how to fill out your tax. That's the book that simplifies the policy for you, that's in plain language, that explains what you need to do. That's the office manual, if you like. Mm -hmm. The policy is supposed to be a technical document limited to the decisions the organization has made. It's not a handbook on how to be a good employee. It's not a... Uh, what it's not an explanation. Oh, you don't understand what a repository is. Well, this policy will explain it to you. That's not the role of the policy. Hmm? Oh, okay. So it's the people are failing to distinguish the two. So policies contain all kinds of stuff which is not policy. That is, it's not a decision of the organization. Mm -hmm. And if I can give you a, a very common example, I see in the information management world, I'll often see a policy that says something like. Um, all our information assets are subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Mm -hmm. Well, they are anyways, whether you say that or not. Ah. The fact that you say that in your policy doesn't make it any more so. Okay. So you haven't made any decision. Mm -hmm. And, and I, why are you saying that? And they say, well, we'd like to remind people about it. Mm -hmm. That's fair enough, but the place to remind them is not in the policy. It's mm -hmm. in the office manual. Okay. purpose of the office manual is to help people get their work done. That's where you can explain to them anything that might be new, any concepts. You want to define things to help them understand. That's where you do all that in the office manual. 
The policy is approved at a very high level by some committee or some people whose time is very limited. Mm -hmm. You want this policy to go through as quickly as possible, use as little of their time as possible. So the less there is in that they can object to, the faster it's going to be passed through. So there should be nothing in the policy that isn't a decision that they actually make. The people that approve the policy. Oh, okay. So why do you think these companies fall into these three common errors? So a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I asked, where do people learn to, to make rules? Or where did you learn to make your rule? Where did you first learn rules? My, my parents, parents yeah. And it teaches all of us. And what we heard was sit up straight. You better finish your vegetables before I give you dessert. And mm -hmm. don't let me catch you doing that again. And what we took away from that was that rules should sound bossy. When I make rules, they should sound like I'm bossing something mm -hmm. around. Now, uh, just so you know that I don't blame everything in my life on my parents. Um, <laughs> what they were trying to get across was the way you approach um, children. So how adults in charge speak to children when they need to direct them. Not how adults in charge talk to other adults. And that's a very different skill. Mm. So it would have been very nice if your parents had said, you know, you finish your vegetables before I give you dessert. But if you have company for dinner, you better not tell them in that tone of voice. Yeah. Right? They didn't approach that. So that's the first rule. That our exposure, most of us go into rule-making mode as parents. Mm -hmm. The second reason is a, an historical vestige of the old command and control hierarchy. Came from a time when there were few men in charge. And they, they were men at the time. And they were mm -hmm. giving instructions to women. Uh, giving instructions to people who they thought were of lower class mm -hmm. who were required to obey and not question. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't about collaboration. This was really about me telling you what to do. And it's mm -hmm. a vestige of an old command and control structure mm -hmm. that uh, we don't have room for in 2019. Right. And I think it's I think it's interesting that you bring up that like some these policies basically assume you won't comply. And it's funny because, you know, at an office, everybody there is an adult. Like, you run your own life, you pay your own taxes, you come into work every day. And it's funny that, like, there's kind of an understanding, like, hey, we're all adults. We all know how to follow rules. So these policies shouldn't assume that I won't be, like, a, just a functioning adult. Like you said, That's office hours are 9 to 5. Worded. You're right. They assume that you won't comply. Um, there's a um, this tone that I've had enough of people not listening to me. Mm -hmm. about this rule. I've told the when you have employees must or this will happen. Mm -hmm. um, and if I can give you that example again, um, employees must submit their vacation requests seven days in advance or it may be refused. Mm -hmm. Now, what's been going on at that organization that they said that, that they felt compelled right. to say that? They've had trouble with that and mm -hmm. they're frustrated mm -hmm. and they felt they had to throw out an ultimatum. And we mm -hmm. can tell all that from the wording of the policy. Right. And I don't think that's what they wanted to convey. Right. No, right? I think they were probably just trying to fix a frustration or, you know, they're trying to help maybe alleviate the pressure on HR or right. senior execs to approve. Right. But I think, I think something that like with these rules, they, they become inflexible and you get those kind of weird situations where there's like a zero tolerance policy, but it was a really weird situation. You know, like maybe I didn't come in, my car broke down, I didn't come in till 10. But if the policy is like, you must be in by nine, 
Like, there's no flexibility to be understanding of life occurring outside of the work. Like, people don't materialize right. at nine and disappear at five. That's right. I think the, the other point, and you're raising it here, is that the policy is a target. The policy is not a bar after, you know, when people cross the line, they get zapped with electricity and punished. Um, if you think of speed limits on the road, those are targets. And we know that there are people who break the speed limits. It's, and if I were to tell you, well, we've invented a car, as soon as you go above the speed limit, your car will explode. You know, like, <laughs> nobody will go for that. Right. But yet people expect that kind of compliance to their policies in the organization instead of allowing for those human factors that you mm -hmm. that you just raised. And the point of the policy is not to um, <clears throat> draw the line in the sand, to tell people when you're going to spear them with your sword, <laughs> but to give them the target of the organization. Right. Right? This is... And if you need to draw a line in the sand, and that, that may be enough, then the policy should be where we draw the line in the sand. So it might be that an employees who arrive late at work three days in a row are spoken to mm -hmm. by their supervisor. That's our policy. Right. Because okay. then you have the open opportunity for the conversation to be either, hey, you need to come in on time or there's something going on in your life. That's right. Can we make some adjustments? You know, because right. the policy is flexible. You come in later, you stay later, but where everybody's happy, That's everybody's right. getting their work done. In your experience, what are the benefits when you rewrite the policies? So the first benefit is that people are much more uh, willing to buy in, okay? Because when you say um, something as simple as office hours are nine to five, people will understand that, it's clear, and if they have an issue, they can speak to you about it. When your policy has a um, you must and, and there are no exceptions and we can refuse this, you're asking them not just to buy into the rule, but to buy into the potential threat and to buy into your pissy attitude. So it's a lot of people won't buy into that. I mean, they're much more likely to buy into it if it's respectful. The, the second benefit is that if we can get away from all the emotional language, we now can focus on the real issue, which is, is nine to five the right time period for us to pick? Now, that's what really we should be discussing. Office hours are from nine to five. Not, I don't like that word, I don't, you know, right. And, and, and if in fact we have issues about the nine to five, now we can actually talk concretely about the issues. Um, the, the next benefit is that um, they actually say, they, they pass through approval much faster, okay? Because as I say, the less emotion you have in there, the more just clear facts, the people above are just approving the facts, um, like the nine to five, the decisions they make. It shortens the policy process. In some organizations, you know, they um, it can go from a year or two. There's one further benefit that I have to tell you about. A woman named Karen contacted me and she said when she applies for a job, she asks to see the company's policies because she wants to see how they talk to people. And if she doesn't think she likes the tone of voice, she leaves. She doesn't work for them. So that means if you have harsh sounding policies in your organization, everybody wears it. And the worst problem you have is you'll never know that Karen was there. <clears throat> you didn't know she came by and looked at the policies and thought, you guys don't know what you're doing, and left. So it's really important to clean up, not just for your current people, but prospective people that you're trying to hire will look at your policies and say, is this the kind of organization I want to work for? Mm -hmm. 
So in, in hearing this, it seems like something that goes beyond just policies, the respectful language. Have you seen that this has greater application? I'm talking about maybe it is how you should talk to your kids or talk to your wife or colleagues. That's interesting because some people have come up to me when I gave you that that example about the vegetables before and say, parents shouldn't talk to their kids that way either. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids, so I can't enter that discussion. Um, but I, I do know that the, um, the parental tone of voice is something that we learn from our parents and teachers. And, and when we are granted uh, or delegated the authority to start writing rules, Yes, it's not just the writing. It's the way we talk to people. It's the way we set expectations for them. Uh, the way we, we think we're in charge and manage and write goals. That's right. It pervades all of it. My particular focus is how is it reflected in writing and specifically in the policy. So I'm really niched that way. But it is broader. To talk about this, um, these respectful policies and the impacts they have on their companies and just how you spoke, how they have an impact on both current and future employees, I think that's a such an important piece to make because I think companies now who have, you know, have always been this like hierarchical, like we are mm -hmm. the parent, you mm -hmm. must obey us, are struggling now to retain or even gain these younger workers because the, I, like full disclosure, I am under 30. Um, and I, when I was looking for a job, I looked for companies that allowed for the human element, that they, they didn't lord over their employees. They're flexible, you know, they have flexible hours. They let you work from home. They let life occur. And I think, like to your point, having these respectful policies and having this open discussion with employees allows for, you retain employees, they're happy. They're happy to comply because you're talking to them like the adults that they are. You know, I'm so glad you raised that because I've had people uh, talk to me about some of the poorly written policies and they've said things exactly, you know, the millennials are coming in and they won't put up with this kind of language. And I say, yes, you're right, but I have a question. Why do you put up with this kind of language? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not very good. Well, I'm used to it, is what I hear. Mm -hmm. I'm used to being spoken to like that. Well, I don't. I know, in fact, when you talk about um, you're assuming people don't comply, they're not talking to me. They're talking to the people who don't comply. You know, they're yeah. talking to people who are doing bad things. They're not talking to me. But that's not what policies are supposed to be about. Right. Right. So... That's, that's a focus that I think is a very positive example that yeah. we could learn from the, the younger generation. We, uh, I think uh, certainly baby boomers and the, we're, uh, the generation next, we're too tolerant uh, mm -hmm. because we're so used to seeing this disrespect. Um, on my doctor's office, there is a sign, I kid you not, it says, rudeness will not be tolerated. We will call the authorities. <laughs> It's so extreme, like, because like, you're right, it's the one person that came in and was, like, off the handle rude. Right. But, like, it makes the assumption that, like, you're going to be rude. And I think, right. like, to your point, you said, you know, I think maybe the younger generations, they're maybe used to seeing people be intolerant or people lord over, mm -hmm. and they've, they've decided, you know what, enough is enough. Like, I don't have to be talked to this way because I'll work at the Young Fun Company that has everybody that's, like, more fun. And, you know, maybe there's, there's obviously a balance, but I think... Maybe there's a frustration with, you know, maybe the older generations that they're like, we've had to put up with this so long and we didn't actually have to. Like, wait, people can talk to me in a respectful tone. So. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, Louis. We really appreciate you coming by. Um, again, Louis's book is titled 
How to Write Rules That People Want to Follow, a guide to writing respectful policies and directives, and you can buy it on Amazon. Thank you so much. My pleasure.